Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Finally, I know what love feels like, even if I had to invent it myself. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Ryan, and thank you so much for listening to Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number two. You didn't have to, but you took pity on me, and I will never forget it. All right, so if you missed episode one earlier this week, I explained how this will go, which is that the first episode of every week will be kind of like a variety show with some comedy segments, some serious chats, but mostly shorter, quick hitters, uh, while the second episode, of which this is one, will feature a longer conversation with a figure in sports or sports media. On that note, I'm delighted that we have Tim Layden as our first guest today. Tim wrote for Sports Illustrated for 25 years before switching to NBC Sports last year, and I can't think of anybody who has witnessed a more dramatic change in a single outlet in one career. He was there in the mid-90s when it was the home of the best sports journalists in the country, of which he was one and continues to be one, and he was there at the end when the ghouls from Maven turned it into a loathsome clickbait farm. My words only. <laughs> don't, don't quote Tim on that, please. Uh, but we are going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about his work at NBC Sports, uh, particularly his TV work, and a whole lot more. But quickly, let me once more plug the Apocalypse Sports Network. This podcast is part of that. The network includes two of these shows each week and five daily blog posts on the topic we love so much, sports. Uh, my opinion only. It's funny. It's thoughtful. It's hopefully entertaining. And if you're interested in being a part of it, it's just $3 a month. Come on, it's nothing. It's the change from your couch if you never, ever clean your couch since the 90s. Uh, you've probably seen a link already, but if not, go to patreon.com slash apocalypse sports to sign up. Or if you want to sample the goods first, greedy little piggies, including this week's earlier podcast and a few things I wrote that are not behind the paywall, check out apocalypsesports.net. We would have had .com, but that URL belongs to a gun store in Louisiana. True story, you can check it. Anyhow, let's play that segment break sound effect and get right into our chat with Tim Layden. Segment break! All right, Tim Layden, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great. Excited. Uh, Tim, you and I are both from the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York, and lately I've been getting the feeling that we're going to have to go back there, uh, hole up in the mountains, and kind of ride out the apocalypse. Uh, how are you? Uh, how are you handling this? I know, I know. I, and I and I gotta say, you're you you get you get much more of a Adirondack uh, cred than I do. I'm sort of at uh, 
we call Whitehall the foothills of the Adirondacks, which is a it's kind of a highfalutin term for Whitehall, New York. But uh, that's I mean, where you are is really the Adirondacks or where you where you're from. Um, say, you're, you're practically in Manhattan, basically, from <laughs> from our perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're like several stops on Amtrak down from where you were. <laughs> but uh, but uh, everything I've learned about my hometowns in the last few years, I'm uh it's not a place I'd want to be right now as much as I loved being there when I was a kid, but not now. What, what's going on there? Well, it's just the town is really, um, I'm, I'm sure, I think when you take places like upstate New York, whether it's the Adirondacks or just the various valleys and uh, between Vermont and New York, a lot of towns have either remade themselves as sort of mini tourist towns or they haven't. Right, and uh, right. Whitehall hasn't. And uh so it's just a place with a lot of poverty and a lot of sadness and, and, and some people doing a lot of hard work to prevent all that. But um, it's a it, it's a town that's really struggled in recent years. And uh, um, the po- the politics of the town reflect that as well. And that's uh, that's been a bit of an issue for me, too. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I followed my grandfather around. Uh, he he, my grandfather is still alive in his late 80s, and for a long time he was a volunteer technician for voting machines. And so, all around upstate New York, I went with him one day, watching him, you know, fix these gear and lever machines. And I think maybe I was shielded from it, being from Saranac Lake and Lake Placid, because, like you said, they they do have a tourist appeal, and they're. They're like little mini oases, I think, in the uh, Adirondacks. But the poverty all around it was stunning to me, even having grown up there. And I can only imagine it's gotten worse. And I, I don't think any of this is going to help. No, and it's not at all. I mean, it, it, the, ever, there's so many of those towns that are right on the edge of collapse at all times. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a lot of the people that work there that, you know, that I'm sure the whole discussion of whether the country should open up or stay closed on an economic front that's not much of a discussion in places like Whitehall. Um, you know, those, I'm sure for, for reasons that are both practical and political, um, those people all want to get back to work really soon. And, uh, um, I just, I feel bad for them. I feel bad for everybody in places like that. And you're right that people that take a vacation to Lake George or Lake Placid or the thousand islands, uh, those people don't really understand what, upstate New York looks like. And, uh, and I don't mean that in a, in a critical way. I just mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not everything that you see in a, in a travel brochure or a travel website. Yeah, that's right. And I, I do remember even playing uh, places like Mariah and Ticonderoga, which are closer to you in high school. And even then, you know, 20 years ago, feeling, oh, boy, this is really hard scrabble. And and the people are a little bit different. You could tell there's sort of like a minor, you know, factory origins there, more working class and everything. So, yeah, I think you're right. I'm sure the consensus is uh, let's get back to work. Um, I, that's also <laughs> my consensus. Not not that I want to put anybody in danger, but that's a good segue to, uh, you know, you and I, both sports writers and, and both sort of uh, hold up at home right now. How are you? Uh, how are you making out in Connecticut? Uh, well, we're, we're fine. I mean, I mean, we have several things in our favor um, and I totally respect it, that that um, in some ways that makes us different from a lot of people. Number one, our kids are grown up, so we don't have little kids in the house not going to school and that is <laughs> yeah, a huge yeah. thing that i have younger friends here in town and and that's a major factor that that's incredibly disruptive to to the family's lives and the second thing is we have room 
you know, we live, you know, we don't live on a country estate or anything, but we live in a relatively quiet neighborhood and we have a, a backyard and a front yard and sidewalks and quiet streets. And there's a there's a prep school nearby that, that of course, is shut down and we can take walks there and, you know, ride a bike on a bike trail that's not not packed with other people. So and then the third thing is I've worked at home for 40 years. You know, yeah, yes, um, yes, yes. it was usually accompanied by travel to go cover games and and meet interview subjects. But now it's basically all the time. But the idea of being hunkered down in an office in my own house working is not not a foreign concept to me. So there's a lot of ways in which, uh, while this is really weird, that that for me and for a lot of sports writers, you know, this is not. It's not as far outside the norm as it is for some people. I don't, you know, people went into an office every day that has to be really disorienting to not do that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm similar. My day to day does not look much different. I tore my ACL last year, so I haven't even been playing tennis, which is my big you know, hobby. So I think I might actually get outside more now than I did before. Um, but yeah, no, that's good to hear. And, uh, and as I mentioned in the intro, Tim, you work for NBC sports, but for a very long time, uh, you worked for sports illustrated. You retired from that last year. Um, and I do want to talk about that at some point, but yeah, just really briefly, NBC sports, you're still writing for them. Um, you're doing a lot of TV work. I know you did uh, TV with them for a couple of years before you, uh, were full time. And yeah. I just think, um, yeah, it'd be an interesting perspective. You know, I'm someone who's been on, uh, the golf channel like a handful of times. I've done a very few TV appearances and it's always so completely nerve wracking to me. Um, you know, something like a podcast format, I think there's freedom because I don't have to worry how I look. And I, you know, I know I can still bungle the audio version, but at least, <laughs> but at least nobody has to look at me. Uh, so yeah, just, I, I think that you'd have a great take somebody who's been a writer for the majority of your career. And now you're doing a ton of TV stuff. What's that like? I've never I'm I'm not comfortable with the TV part of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. They don't they don't make me go on TV too often, which I appreciate. But they do they do ask it of me on on occasion at big events. And, uh, you know, I think there's probably going to be a lot of that in the Olympic year. But obviously the Olympic year is pushed pushed off now. Um, you know, the whole thing just started. I mean, I think every sports writer. Uh, you know, of, of multiple generations has had to get used to being on television occasionally. And uh, back when, uh, you know, there was a, you know, we can talk about SI in more detail, but back in the late 90s, um, you know, SI and CNN launched a sports channel called CNN SI. And uh, gosh, I was on TV like twice a week for that channel, you know, sometimes right, in right. college football stadiums and sometimes on a campus somewhere and sometimes in a studio. So I, I sort of got used to it. And then I didn't do a lot of it for a long time. Um, it would always be hit or miss. You'd be at an event and you'd be the expert on site and somebody would want to talk to you. And if you had time, you would do it. Um, the NBC gig came about more just sort of, I have, I have acquaintances there and, uh, 2015, 16, 17, I would see them at events and people would say, Hey, you know, we should have you do something for us. And, uh, you know, in 2017, I did a couple sort of like, you know, Tom Rinaldi type essays for them where, you know, you just write a couple hundred words and then you read it on the air. Yeah, and the right. original plan was that I would do a few of those. And then, uh, they would have somebody who was more of a professional read them on the air. And, 
but they said, why don't you just try it? So um, I read a couple of them and they said, you know, you're not horrible. So, <laughs> so you know, why don't, why don't we use your voice? And then, you know, the thing they've said in the interim is that we like the way you do essays because you sound authentic, which I think <laughs> I take good. authentic to mean not professional. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. we'll see, we'll see how many, uh, how much, how much, what kind of legs that has. But, uh, and then about a year ago, I had some conversations with people there that I might be thinking about leaving SI because I wasn't, uh, confident of the the way the future looked sure, there and sure. uh, yeah and they they came back to me and said you know if you do leave si maybe you could you know sort of move your writing over to here and uh yeah so that seemed like something worth trying and that's what we've been trying to piece together for the last uh, nine months or so i think uh, i've gotten a little bit of that too throughout my career not with tv stuff but in other things where people kind of give you these compliments that really underneath them, it's kind of saying you're rough around the edges <laughs> a little bit. And exactly. uh, I, I wonder yeah. if that's an upstate New York thing. You know, I, I can hear it in your voice. You can probably hear it in mine. I, I'd be able to pick out where you were from. And uh, maybe there's uh, something about the Adirondacks that makes us that way. I know there's been this thing over the course of my life where, uh, you know, I've traveled around the world covering things or traveled around the country and, I can remember several occasions where I would run into somebody and they would say to me, are you from New York? And then they would step back and say, no, wait, maybe Boston. It's either New York or Boston. You're from somewhere over there, up there. That's right. And I'm like, well, I'm not from either one of those places, but I guess there's, I guess uh, the, those of us that are from upstate New York or from the Adirondacks, there must be some, some edginess to our, to our accent that makes people realize that we're not from, uh, you know, not from the Midwest or the South and they can't really place it, but you know, that's right. But, but yeah, the voiceover thing, it's like, it's interesting. One thing I've learned is that, you know, the people at, at NBC and probably elsewhere, they, they work with their own people that are professionals to what they told me is they try to get people to not have too much of what they call announcer voice. And, uh, <laughs> yes, because yes. I think, I think with a lot of the changes in media, you know, there's so many people doing podcasts and so much of media is a little more conversational. Totally. But yep. I think, I think an audience, um, recognizes when somebody's doing, you know, Casey Kasem, you know, they can, uh, they can sense that difference. And I think media companies are trying to sort of, you know, push that out a little bit. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that's a really good and specific point because I, I have the same thing where, you know, I, I've done a, a number of radio appearances far more than I have any TV stuff. And it does seem more in radio that there's still that voice. And I think you're right in that it sounds more inauthentic now because of the way podcasts are going. So like if I had introduced you say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so happy to be joined by Tim Lehman. <laughs> exactly. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. And it's just like, well, stop it. It's just, it's uh, but you know, I guess it didn't sound phony for many years. Otherwise people wouldn't do it. Uh, and now it's just, there's something about it that hits the ear in such a way that you're like, Ugh. it's like nails on a chalkboard almost. I do think it's the podcast uh, culture that's created that. And it's a good thing. You know, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. and I think you see it a lot in talk radio now, too. Depending on the show, you still can like I'll, I'll go on shows occasionally to talk about things. And sometimes the announcer comes on and you can tell that he's kind of like an old school guy. Right. And, right. and not, not necessarily by age or generation. There's plenty of young radio people that have that, you know, 
I call it the, you know, the nitro burning funny cars voice, which is like <laughs> goes back to when they had those drag racing commercials on radio and TV. That, Sunday, you know, they Sunday. Were so overcooked. And, you know, you you do get that occasionally. And I I think it sounds insincere. Right. And uh, and I think audiences recognize that. And uh, it's the same kind of voice change that's occurred in writing, um, but not it's more obviously visceral when it's actually someone's real physical voice, not just their written voice. Yeah. I think with writing, um, the one thing I've noticed is you see fewer and fewer of the, uh, gosh, I don't know. you know how I'd put it. I guess there's two things that I feel like have disappeared a little. One of them is the very solemn, stoic, almost like Hemingway esque magazine feature in sports. And then the other is the very quippy kind of, um, I don't know if you call it like later stage Rick Riley or something, uh, sort of like constant joke thing. Like Dan Jenkins is a little bit like that, even though he was a terrific writer. I feel like both of those things have uh, have drifted away a little bit. Maybe the same phenomenon that more people are sort of writing in this quote unquote authentic voice. I think so. And I, I every time I sit down to write, I I know that I. Um... You know, I went I went for years um, trying to tell people to be careful with first person in your writing. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, like it's I, I think one thing that always bothered me, even even as I started to embrace inserting myself into writing more, I still didn't like it when people use first person just as a mechanical device to walk through the story. The kind of thing where. Um, I was in Saranac Lake, New York, and I, I needed to talk with the mayor. So I got out of my car and I walked up the stairs and I knocked <laughs> on his door and then he let me in. I sat down. My yeah. first question was this. And I thought, you know, don't do that. If, if, if putting yourself in the story advances the story, like you have some connection to it or you're undergoing some challenges in doing the story, that's all valid. But don't just drop yourself in. And I've kind of evolved even on that. I'm, I'm sort of slowly getting broken down to where I'll I'll do that once in a while because over the last I don't know five to fifteen years as I as I've written longer stories and inserted myself into the story, people love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, they really yeah. and it, it causes you to be less artistic. Um, that Hemingway esque thing you're talking about. But right. I'd go back to I think when Rick Riley was at his best, like in the you know, 88 to 98 or whatever, right, when he right. wasn't just Mr. Joke a minute, Rick Riley, mm -hmm. he, he had developed a great talent for using that jokiness in the context of a serious story. Yeah. I try to find myself doing that now where use first person, use yourself, connect yourself to the story, connect yourself to the reader, but just don't do it in every sentence, you know, like just drop back and write a straight, third person three paragraphs then then come back in you know it's like not to get too inside writerly here no, but I, no it's interesting I, 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 hopefully people will be will be interested in this because i i very much am um and it's it's one of those things too i think that you talk about the using yourself to move the narrative forward i think there's certain people that do it so incredibly well um i'm trying to think of someone in sports but you know, maybe like wright thompson you see in sports but a guy like john jeremiah sullivan or Maybe like David Foster Wallace at his best when he was still around. I, there are people who do it so well that I think other writers see it and then try to do it themselves. And it it's one of those things that when it works, it really works. And when it's bad, it's really bad. And so I think probably you found what I found where it's like you see, like you said, yeah, I, I got out of my car. And the first question I asked the mayor was this, where 
uh, it's like, yeah, they shouldn't be copying that tone, but the people who can do it, boy, they can really do it. And yeah, and even it doesn't take much about if there's just the slightest thread to make it valuable to the story. You know, like if you if you got lost trying to find the mayor and you were like a half hour late for the interview and the mayor was kind of pissed off at you and then the interview <laughs> yeah. went badly. I think that all that could that actually could have value in the story, depending on what the story's about. Um, it works better in feature writing than really sort of news slash feature. I think it, I think the, the more serious the subject matter, the more careful you have to be with how much you get congenial with it. Um, but, but it can be, you know, I, I remember you did a story. Uh, where did you, where did you go to a primary? I think. Um, yeah, I've been to so, Iowa, Iowa twice now. Uh, yeah. 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 It was, and you were, you, there was some hotel room stuff and eating stuff. I, <laughs> but that was a good example of writing about a fairly serious topic. Right, um, right. But with you, but, but it was about you and the topic. Well, frankly, and, frankly, and, when the naked woman showed up at my hotel door, I was like, I can't not right, write about right, this. That one, gotta, yeah, there's yeah, got to be some yeah. connection. I, uh, I just reread a piece that I really like, which is uh, Woody Allen wrote in, in the late 70s about uh, Earl Monroe. And there's a long passage where he builds up he's, and he wants to do this interview with Monroe and Earl Monroe loves him because he's already a movie star by that time. And so they set a date uh, and he goes to Earl Monroe's mansion and Earl Monroe's woman is there and, and saying that Earl's very busy and all this stuff. And he waits for like an hour and a half and Earl Monroe never comes. And it's just great. I don't know why, <laughs> you know, it's Woody Allen's voice and everything, but he doesn't yeah. get mad at him. He forgives him. Um, and it's, it is one of those first person things where it's like, Nothing happens, but the way he used it is just so perfect there. Yeah, and, and I think, and, and obviously the extreme case of all these things is when your story is actually a first-person experience. And, right, of course. And again, yeah. your, your, your Iowa story was sort of an experience within a story. And when, that, when that's the case, it works really well. I mean, I did a story for SI like seven or eight years ago about my great uncle, who's the baseball player Johnny Evers and Tinker to Evers to Chance. He was one of the guys. Oh, wow. And, I, did, I did not know that. Yeah. And I did a story about that for SI. It was like a bonus, like, you know, many thousands of words. And I just said, you know, I, I kind of just said, I'm going to do this story as me trying to discover my uncle. Yeah, um, yeah. Who I who I had always known about, but never really known in any way. And it really it's incredibly liberating to write that way. And and people, if it's real, if it's genuine, that kind of thing where you're the writer is experiencing something with the reader. Um, it just can be incredibly powerful. I just don't like it back to the beginning of this little conversational thread. I just don't like it when it's um, when it's cheap, you know, when it's there's nothing really there. It's just the writer. Like if you don't have a connection to the story, maybe just try writing the story. <laughs> yeah, just don't, yeah, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be about you if it's not about you. That's right. Um, That's and, right. you know, then I think people worry that they're going to fall into that cliche kind of writing. And, and, you know, there's a long way between first person and totally off the wall cliches. There's a lot of ways to tell a story. And I just think if you're not in it, you're not in it. It's okay. You know, that's right. But um, I do think, you know, the it, it's easy to fall into first person because that's kind of the anytime I've taught a class or worked with a bunch of writers, that's the way they're all going to go in their first drafts is like I did this. I did that. I remember this. I heard about that. And because it's sort of the way that people write a text or an email or, you know, an Instagram post. Mm -hmm. And yep, um, yep. that's just I think that's the voice of of now. 
and you know that's just the way it, it's easy to grab onto that but yeah i think you're right and uh, i think a, maybe a good segue from there before again before we get into the si stuff you are still writing features for nbc sports and they're still incredibly good um one of the best stories i've read this year probably the best sports story was deep water uh which is a story you wrote in january about a judo player named jack hatton who committed suicide um this to me is is a great one to talk about. Obviously, it's not one where you're gonna <laughs> where you're gonna be flooding it with the first person stuff. Um, but I I do want to ask like this is something that uh, in the wrong hands a story like this could be treated you know very poorly. Um, and you turned it into something great. And maybe touch talk a little bit about that story, Tim, and then the, the sensitivity you kind of have to bring um, to doing something like this where. Gosh, the people you're talking to are so invested. There's so much grief. There's so much heartbreak. And, and you know, here you are with a very difficult task of going into this world, uh, not only having these people talk to you, but then translating in a way that not is just a good story, but is going to kind of honor the memory and, and exactly what happened to this, to this guy, Jack Hatton, who seems like was a budding, uh, you know, potential medalist. Yeah, he was, Jack is, uh, he was a 24 year old judo player. Um, Last September, he died by suicide at the at the training center at the house he lived in in in, uh, in, in Massachusetts, out near Boston. And um, I I let like I let like six weeks pass or a month pass, and mm-hmm. then went to my editors at NBC and said I'd like to look into doing this story. And there's actually a little bit of concern. Um, obviously, NBC um, wants to tell stories, but as with any broadcast entity, they'd like to tell in a perfect world, happier stories. But I said, let's, let's try this. And I think there's a message here. And, uh, and yes, totally. um, You know, I, the first contact I made was with one of his uh, coaches and then one of his training partners. And then they put me in touch with Jack's father, who was incredibly crestfallen and emotionally broken by the whole experience. And, uh, and that came across, he he connected me with a lot of other people. And uh, it was just a process of reporting for about, five or six weeks and then writing for another three or four weeks and uh and trying to keep in mind that there was like you know this was a young man who obviously had a some form of mental illness uh, some form of depression mm-hmm. it was not never diagnosed um suspected but never diagnosed and um and then it was a matter of talking to people about him but remembering that i'm trying to tell a story that as you said honors who this young man was and he was a fascinating character um, but also has sensitivity to the fact that he's gone and people are left behind and they're hurting, but also try and maybe deliver a message that, you know, that people are hurting everywhere. Yes, um, yes. And we put the suicide hotline number in there and then tried to make the ongoing message of the story that if you're hurting, talk to somebody. And uh, it was interesting because when the people I talked to were incredibly open with me, yeah, um, especially his dad and especially his mom, and they're not together. Um, and when this, when I wrote the story, a few of those people were really upset initially. They said, I can't believe you wrote all these things. I, I told those to you in confidence. But they weren't in confidence, of course. They sure, just, yeah. I was dealing with people who aren't used to talking to journalists, and I thought they understood what we were doing. But then I, you know, they were angry at me and upset, but then I, I just pulled back and I let them yell at me I, in the hope that people would come to them and say, hey, this was actually a really good story. You shouldn't be mad at that guy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened is that a day, two days, three days, a week, two weeks went by and people came to the family and came to the friends and said, hey, this, 
this story was actually really good and we thought it was it told Jack's story well and maybe it can help people. So yeah. it, it took about a month before everybody wasn't mad at me anymore. No kidding. And in huh. fact, then they then they came to actually like what I had written and, and respect it. But it's just that you're the you know you deal with professional athletes. They understand that they might not be portrayed the way they like to be portrayed, but they know how they know how the game is. Yeah. These were people who weren't used to being publicized, weren't used to being interviewed, and uh, they were just initially shocked at seeing their own words and their own stories in print, even though they knew that was what I was doing. Um, but but time has passed, and people have told them that it was a good story, and it was good for Jack, and good for the family, and good for the world of athletes with depression. So it's all good now, yeah. but for a while it was a little sketchy. Yeah, that's really fascinating, and, and I'll link this story um, when I put the podcast up so people can read it, and I'll link the one uh, also link the one about uh, your great uncle. But yeah, that that is something that's. You know, like you said, they knew they knew what you were doing. They knew you were going to write a story about this, but there's probably, I think it would be hard maybe for a civilian to cover that distance in their mind between talking to you as a human being and you're getting their story and then imagining that this is, you know, it, it would be hard for them to imagine what this is going to end up like and what it's going to look like. And so there's probably some shock initially when they do that. And that's one of the weird parts about, about our jobs. I'm reading uh, Dave Cullen's Columbine book right now. And yeah, I think there's a few th a few similarities there where he, you know, he talked to people that were very willing to talk to him. And then after the book was published or after he wrote certain articles, they were upset with him. And then the same cycle that you talked about, eventually it goes back to actually, you know, this story was told pretty well and we're happy with it now. But yeah, what, what a strange, what a strange and interesting dynamic that is. Yeah. And the thing is that, that, you know, one thing, you know, if you're a journalism professor or just a visiting lecturer or whatever that it's hard for people to talk to people. I mean, that's people think that's the hardest part of the job interviewing someone. And, and it is in a way, but the other thing you have to remember is people like to talk. Oh, yeah. And I was dealing in this story as was, you know, the guy that wrote the Columbine book, which I also read and it's fantastic. Yep. Um, People who have been traumatized, people who are are in shock, they especially want to talk. And this was a story about a young guy, and his family and friends wanted to talk about him. They wanted to talk about what a great kid he was. And I just think that they were so happy to be talking to somebody that they may have forgotten at times that they were talking to a journalist. That's and right. That's right. That's kind of as a journalist, you want people to forget that. But there's a, there's a very delicate area in there. And I, I tried very hard. There were many, many stories and anecdotes and details that I left out of that story mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. because I was told by suicide experts not to be specific in certain ways. Um, but even even what I left out, um, even what was in there was difficult for people to read. Like I said, they're all good with it now, but it was it was hard. And yeah, yeah. But that's. As you said, that's not an uncommon scenario in this business. And it is funny, too, people, you know, well, first of all, the dynamic between, like you said, a lot of times you and I are talking to professional athletes and they very much understand what's going on and very much typically, at least with me, don't want to be talking to me. Or, or if they if they do have a pleasant conversation, and I had to get that, you know, by twisting their arm or begging their agents or whatever versus talking to civilians who are don't have this experience very often and normal people like to be heard and like to talk. And even some of these people who might, you know, have an issue with the media in the broadest, like most abstract sense, when they're talking to another human being, I think it's very easy to forget who they're talking to. Uh, and yeah, and you do want that. You want you want the most like honest thing you can get. But then there's that weird moment where you turn it into a story, isn't there? Where 
you're like we connected as humans, but now I'm a journalist again, and that's that's the game, and that's how it's supposed to be. But it always there always for me has been something a little strange about it. Um, not that I would ever change anything or do anything differently, but uh, quite a quite a fraught little like relationship there in some ways. And it's and it's it's also easy when you have the really good quotes. And you get the quote in that moment and you're interviewing somebody and your brain tells you what an amazing quote this is. Yep. But while you're still interacting with the subject, you're very protective and you're very you want to be very careful with that quote. But when it comes time to write, it becomes just a quote again. That's right. And then you almost have to take yourself back to when you were in the presence of that of that subject and remember to treat that information carefully. And yeah. it's it's once you get writing and you're trying to get the thing done and you're trying to get your voice right, it's easy to just start using those quotes just as mechanical pieces of the story. And they're not. They're still very powerful pieces of information. That's right. So let's uh, Tim, let's talk about Sports Illustrated, if you don't mind a little bit. So you started there yeah. uh, in 1994 and uh, that was. For me, let's see. I was I would have been eleven years old then, and that was right in the period, you know, from age ten to eighteen when I was had my SI subscription. It was one of the things I looked forward to each week. I always remember it came on Thursdays, uh, and I would get this magazine, and that was the heyday. Uh, and you stayed there. You were there for twenty five years and change, and you saw this change incredibly. And you had a a front row seat for. Uh, something that would be, I guess, emblematic uh, in microcosm of the industry as a whole. Uh, SI went from, you know, this this very powerful print magazine. Eventually, it stopped doing that. Um, you know, bought out by venture capital, and you know, in my opinion, has been completely decimated. Um, your tweet. You were very gracious when you retired um, in July of 2019. Your tweet made clear it's not because of this or that. You know, it's this is a decision I'm making, and I'm not done. And of course, you went from there to NBC Sports, but. Maybe maybe starting at the beginning, uh, <laughs> when you first came to SI, this had to be like a dream job. And I can only imagine those few years uh, when SI was really kind of in the golden age or those decades. It must have been really something like what a dream to, to do something like this. Yeah. And I think getting there in 94, I think I in a way I, I, I really barely caught the tail end of the, the golden age um, mm -hmm. of everything, of print journalism and of, of SI's place in the in the marketplace. You know, I think that all that started to go downhill fairly shortly after that, although it wasn't noticeable for a long time. But but yeah, I mean, when I got to SI, it was obviously if you were a newspaper writer at a major paper in 1994, that was the that was the job you aspired to. And, you know, I still have the little piece of scrap paper on which I wrote Peter Carey's name. He was the executive editor of SI, and he called me at my home in New Jersey and, and invited me to come in and talk. And I wrote down his name and his extension and, you know, where where the where I had to park and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I still have it. That's how big a moment it was <laughs> yeah, for me. Yeah. A great thing where, you know, anybody would want to talk to you. You were probably going to be the first call back from any subject and uh, tremendous access and, you know, just just everything you want to tell good stories. Um, pretty big expense account, no holds barred on what airline you could fly. And, you know, just a really but then obviously print journalism was eroded by the uh, rise of the internet and the, the rise of digital media. SI morphed into SI plus SI.com. And essentially my two things happened. One is they never developed a long-term broadcast partner. CNN could have been that, but the relationship went sour. Mm -hmm. 
it was very difficult for a print entity to go forward from the mid 2000 aughts forward without somebody providing a safety net for them. And SI never got that. On the digital side, SI decided they were going to try and become a volume quantity operation with hundreds of little posts a day and try and survive on a page view model. And it just, it, I think that damaged the quality of the of the name and also the page views were never high enough to survive um yeah and yeah. that was i wish that back then si emphasized what we did well which was high quality writing and journalism and and go all in on those things and if it failed it failed that's right um, that's right but instead they tried to become a volume operation and Landed in a place in 2017 or 18 where nobody wanted to buy us. And uh, so we wound up going to a, a, a bidder that really wasn't interested in preserving what SI has been. And they farmed out the operation on the content side to a to the maven who really doesn't care what SI used to be. Yeah. And uh, I don't think the end of it is going to be great. And uh, <laughs> it already isn't great. And uh, when I left SI, I didn't see any of this coming I thought that there were going to be major changes, and for both personal, professional, and financial reasons, I wanted to get out before any of that happened um, and sort of have a good taste in my mouth at the end. Um, I didn't expect it to get as bad as it, as it became. And, and what is that like for you now? I mean, you're out, and you, you, know, you made obviously the wise choice, but still, it is Sports Illustrated. You know, it is this thing that when you came on with something, yeah, like, like you said, you still got the paper that you know signified when you got the job. This was a major coup to write there. It meant you were one of the best sports writers in the country. And now this name is, I mean, you know, it's somewhat of a joke in some ways. I mean, you look, you look at the sort of content farm it is now, and it's, it's just like, you know, just like Bleacher Report would have been in its early days. It just seems like kind of, you know, getting uh, basically unpaid college-age kids to write this sort of, you know, impotent or lame content. Uh, so seeing that, I mean, it's got to sting in some way still, even though you're free from it and you're, you're fine. It still must uh, hit you a little. Yeah. It, it, it's, it stinks. It's, it's awful because, you know, I wanted to, <clears throat> you know, whenever I, I have this running joke with a friend of mine, Neil best who works at Newsday. I'm even, and, you know, to always say like, something happens in your life and and is that going to be in the first paragraph of my new york times obituary if i get one um <laughs> but i you know having written for sports illustrated for 25 years will be in the first paragraph of my new york times obituary if i get one right, um right. and and now that's become something that you know if i live a little while longer that eventually might become something where it's like you know, 10 years ago, an old-time sports writer would die, and they would say he wrote for 23 years for the New York Mirror. And I'd be like, what's the New York Mirror? I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't I, – I hate the idea that Sports Illustrated has become something that nobody knows and nobody remembers. And, and it's really sad because the brand has been incredibly durable. Even with everything that was done to undermine the brand – even right up to the day I left in 2019, it was still probably 75% of the people I would call and identify myself as a writer from Sports Illustrated, their eyebrows would go up, their interest would peak. Mm -hmm. the, the brand still had tremendous value. And if somebody had just been willing to try to 
support that value. I just think that there are ways that that could have been sustained. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's it's a gut punch that that you know the the place that I spent most of my career lovingly is is going to be essentially gone, and uh, and that stinks. And and I want and there's several there's a bunch of good journalists still there. Most of them trying to get out, right, um, which it's right. not a great time to do that, obviously. But mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just—I mean, it's heartbreaking. I, I don't—I don't have new words for it. But you know, it, it was a—it was a self-inflicted death um, that started 20 years ago, and I don't know if any ideas that I had would have been better. But you know, you know, bad on me. I didn't—I didn't go barging into somebody's office and say this is a lousy idea because <laughs> i was yeah. still get i was still getting paid you know and uh that's right you know i i just i feel bad for everyone that's left there you know i i want to bring up an exchange we were emailing about a month ago and you you mentioned offhand and when your emails that you're you know consider yourself you know closer to the finish line in your career and I said something that I said hesitantly. Uh, I'm just going to read what I said. I said, you might tell me to shut up after I say this, and rightly so. But there's a part of me that envies you having gone through most of this because I'm feeling the walls close in on the writing side of things. And sometimes in an idle moment, I think, wouldn't it be nice if I were near retirement and it could at least reflect on a career well spent? And I went on, you know, caveats. I'm not, I don't want to throw the years away or anything like that. Um, and you, you responded, I'm not going to tell you to shut up. You're dead right. And for a few years now, I've used the joke, uh, although it's not a joke at all, that I don't like being a certain age except professionally. And professionally, I would hate being 35 right now. And I'm 37. I, I just thought that was worth uh, bringing up because it is it is such a thing. I very much have like, you know, Tim Layden envy or anybody's envy, envy of anyone who is there, who did it. And they can say, you know what, like, no matter what happens now, I've had a great career and, and this is over. Meanwhile, I feel like I'm on the high seas here and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how the hell I would navigate the next 20 years in this industry. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously I'd rather be 35 than, than 63, but <laughs> at the same time, I would not want to be a 35 year old sports journalist right now. Right. I just think that, um, in the coming years, someone, I, mean, I think I, I always think there will be a market for quality, and I, I think that people that are really good will find a way to make a living at this job. I don't know; it's not going to be the living that I made. It's not going to be the life that I had. You know, I mean, I worked I worked in Albany when they were sending me all around the country to cover things. Mm -hmm. I worked at Newsday when everything was a blank check, basically, um, and I worked at SI when everything was a blank check until the last seven or eight years. Um, and that allows you not only to make money and to own a house and send your kids to college like a, like somebody in any other profession, but it also lets you do great work. And, and yeah, that was, yeah. you know, like that was the best part is that you could go see people and, and go be at the big games and sit in somebody's living room and interview them. And those things are great. And, I, you know, I don't that that career path that I just described from a medium sized newspaper to a big newspaper to a magazine, writing stories, getting a salary, getting benefits, that career path doesn't exist anymore. And it's not coming back. And I think a lot of it has to do with the financial structure of the media business, but it also has to do with everybody's reading habits. And, and you and I talked about this on email, too, which is that it's very hard to break through with a great piece of journalism now. Right, um, I right. mean, no matter how earth shaking something is, it's got a shelf life of like half a day. And that's hard for a writer to, you know, I mean, if, if Gary Smith wrote a great story for SI 
20 years ago, people would be talking about it for two weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that just doesn't happen either. The whole, the whole model financially and professionally and socially and culturally is just upside down. And I don't know how you, somebody's got to catch up to that to be successful. Now there's a part of me too, that everything you said is true. And it's by far the, you know, the biggest reason we're seeing what we see, but I also in my head, I, I think there's something about the internet or something about our culture I shouldn't say our culture, something about the internet digital media culture that is almost allergic to quality. You know, you brought up the point with SI where it's like, why don't you lean into what you do best? Okay, times are tough, but why don't you take a shot and, and sink or swim based on what you're known for and what you're good at instead of trying to go into this field of, you know, content farming that everybody's been there forever and they're better at it than you anyway. Um, and then I think of Deadspin, which on the surface of it would be a completely different thing uh, from SI and... You know, I, I don't know if there were rivalries there or what, but Deadspin is the kind of place where it had a certain tone and a certain sort of aggressive quality, and and that was gutted. And that, that was by all, you know, everything I've heard, it was a pretty successful company still, or at least not losing money. And that was gutted. And it's like two different kinds of quality, but both of them, the people with money came in, the venture capitalists, and said, this is not going to happen. And, you know, I wonder if you have a take on that. It just seems like there's something out there that they're just trying to submarine anything that's good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of this has to do with who who buys you, right? Right, um, right. Like T Time Magazine got bought by a benevolent billionaire, um, and I'm sure, obviously everybody that works at Time Magazine and Time.com, their future is now tied to the guy that owns them. Hundred um, percent, and that's a yep. little scary in its own way, but <laughs> he also seems to just want to let them do what they do and collect whatever profits they make. Um, I, you know, I love Deadspin. I mean, I, I'll qualify that. I didn't love everything Deadspin did. Right. Um, I wasn't, I thought they did some great journalism. I thought they had some incredibly dogged reporters. I thought they had some very super skilled writers. And, and th those people are all still those things. Um, I, I didn't like the, sort of journalist on journalist crime that they like to commit. You know, I, <laughs> right, right. I think that I, I understand everybody, when you put words out into the public, you're fair game. And I've been criticized by them and by others. I get that. I, I just wish that I, I, that wasn't my favorite part of the site. I think the mm -hmm. job is hard enough without having other journalists destroy you and print the next day. And they were good at it. Um, right. And I thought some of this stuff was, too juvenile, but they they get they actually move past a lot of that, and you know eighty percent of what they did I liked, um, and and I thought they're very talented, passionate, hardworking people, and much like SI, they just got bought by the wrong people, and yeah, uh, yeah. and that's not just Deadspin and SI, that's a lot of other outlets that have been bought by the wrong people, and uh, you know I guess there are there is an entire financial subculture or, or or ecosystem out there that just preys on struggling or failing ventures yeah. and they come in and they strip them down for parts and they don't care about the legacy of those places and that's why i wish si had been had been bought si negotiated with nbc si obviously negotiated with espn ESPN very long ago, NBC not, you know, within the last decade and uh, mm -hmm. just couldn't cut a deal to somehow merge those brands and let SI keep doing the journalism. And uh, I don't know, Shane, I don't know if I agree with you that there's no, I don't know how much of an appetite there is for quality in the digital 
media world. I, I realize really? that people yeah. want to move on. They want to click on things and they, I just know when I do something really good, even though the shelf life isn't as long as it used to be, there's a response. And the Jack Hatton story we referred to earlier did real, did really good traffic at NBCSports.com without a lot of help because NBC is still learning how to really promote print content. You know, it's something they're working at and they've gotten behind me on and I'm very much thankful for that. But, you know, I, I, a story like that did really good business just on word of mouth and, and quality. Well, let me, let me, I think uh, that can happen, but it's not the easy way. It's, it's the hard way. Let me clarify. I don't mean there's no appetite for quality. I mean, there are nefarious forces and, and that's my code word for rich people who seem to want to destroy things of quality. Uh, but no, you're absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think the audience is still really smart and, yeah, I, look, I, of course, I hope that there's still a huge, uh, a huge audience out there for quality material. Um, let me ask you, I, you know, I've been watching uh, The Last Dance. I don't know if you've been watching that the last, uh, the last couple weeks. Yeah. Um, yep. But and I also just completely randomly happened to have reread uh, David Halberstam's Playing for Keeps uh, recently, and I just sort of, you know, anytime I have somebody who's been in there and and been around these guys, yeah, you know, I was just curious. Did you ever meet David Halberstam? Did you have any connection with him uh, going back? I never met him personally. Okay, Obviously, yeah. um, I read all his books. Um, you know, I really um, the first the first sports book I read that really opened my eyes to like the different. Other than reading SI in the local newspaper, the first book I ever read that really made me think that there was a different way to write about sports was John McPhee's Levels of the Game. Oh yeah, which is that's a book about the 1968 U.S. Open tennis championship between Arthur Ashe and Clark Grabner, and McPhee, who's obviously a legend in the writing business, um, he wrote that book in a way where it's about the match. But he bounces back and forth doing biographies of Ash and Gravener, yep. who had very different upbringings, and and that was like uh, that's a that's a trope that's been used a lot since then. Actually, Jason Hayer is using it now in 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 Last Dance, you know, bouncing back and forth across time. Um, but McPhee's was the first book. The second sports book I read that was like jaw dropping for me. I, I should say I read Ball Four when I was a kid, so that right, but, of course. But I, that, I was reading that as a wise wide open teenager not as a journalist but the next one was david halberstam's uh, breaks of the game yeah which was about the portland trailblazers in 1977 78 and and that was and then i read the 50s and you know then the you know the the, the everything else right um, right and but i never had a chance to meet him and obviously i think he's the best reporter ever um and you know i think that you know <laughs> I would just say if Gay Talese was as good a reporter as, as David <laughs> Halberstam, his stuff would have been even better. And uh, but those are two different guys. Well, and, Gay, uh, Gay I'm sorry, is... that's a long that's a long answer. I'm a I love Halberstam. Yeah, and, no, it's but great. I, I never did get to meet him. I uh, yeah, and Gay Talese uh, with the recent uh, controversy over his book about the the guy at the hotel who you know spied on people, which turned yeah. out to be mostly false. It kind of it really sort of sheds a lot of his work in a new light. You kind of wonder of like how much should I believe of the Sinatra story or, or anything like that um the other guy i wanted to ask you about and this is a completely uh indulgent question that you may have no connection but because you worked at newsday and because you're such a good reporter and because i've reading uh, all the lbj biographies recently robert caro did you ever have a chance to meet him or, or connect with him in any way 
No, I didn't. Yeah. I obviously <laughs> wish I had, uh, but I, yeah. I never did. And I've, I've read several of his books, but uh, yeah. never had the chance to meet him. The, unfortunately. The, the, there, there's a guy who's the ultimate reporter's reporter. <laughs> he'll just yeah, he'll, he'll yeah. hunker down I for mean, a decade say, on a story. I'll just throw in a plug. The best writer reporter that I worked with on, who was on the news side at Newsday was, was Jim Dwyer. Um, okay. Jim Dwyer works for the Times now, but he's written a couple of pieces during the vibe. He's the best New York street reporter, I think, since Jimmy Breslin. Can, Jimmy Breslin's a whole other story that, you know, I, he was his own, he did things his own way, but a lot of it's pretty incredible. A lot of it you can talk about. But uh, but Dwyer is sort of the modern Jimmy Breslin, and he would, I just, when I was at Newsday, I was just floored every time he put a byline on a story. Well, there you go. And then, uh, Tim, I like to pretend that the uh, this podcast is more than just me wanting to have a conversation with you. Pretend there's some relevance to sports that are happening right now. Uh, and so, you know, you, I associate you with a lot of different things. I associate you with, like, basketball, the Olympics, but also horse racing. You, you've done a lot with that. And, uh, there's something very interesting. There are a lot of athletes out there who lo are losing a year of their sports careers, and, and that's not great. But horse racing, I mean, the horses that I guess were in contention for the Triple Crown this year, I, I think I'm right in saying that that's over, right? If those races don't happen, horses have one year where they can do this, right? Yeah. I've, obviously, obviously, they don't realize that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, with, with horse racing, it's this weird thing where you're always – it's a sport. It's a sport for animals, but you're writing about the people. Right. And uh, I, the sportsmen – there's several races still – racetracks still running, so people can bet, and those racetracks are obviously no spectators, very limited um, attendance by anybody on the, on the track. But, yeah, the Triple Crown this year is – the Derby is supposed to take place on September 5th. We'll see if that happens. I can't imagine that it's going to be with spectators. Um, it, it's upside down, and I don't know where any of that goes. I won't be surprised if none of those races take place. And uh, mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, that whole three-year-old class of horses won't ever run in those classic races if they don't happen. Maybe there'll be a way to make them happen without spectators. I don't know. Um that's going to affect the breeding industry, and that's that's going to affect the people that have invested money in the horses. Um, the, hor the racing's financial structure is always kind of perched on the top of a pile of Jenga blocks anyway. So I, yeah. like, like a lot of other economic enterprises in America, racing is going to be – is going to come out of this in a very different place. Yeah, that's it. And that's, I guess, what I was getting at is like the people who have trained these horses and, and these, whoever the great horses are this year, that's just basically, you know, if they're not held, that just kind of falls through a trap door almost. Yeah, there was a great horse, um, you know, called Tis, the horse's name is Tis the Law. And he was owned by a guy, some of his friends who, 17 years ago, owned a horse named Funny Side, who got a yeah, lot of, yeah. you know, national publicity because it was owned by a bunch of high school friends. And man, that was a great story. I was so looking forward to writing about that horse and, and the people that owned him and hearkening back. We always love to have stories that have some connection to history because it gives you some more layers to the story. And uh, I was so psyched to write about that horse and, and those people. And you know, I would, I'd be in Louisville right now. Um, you know, I would have yeah. just gotten back to the press box from the barns and uh, be writing a story and, uh, you know, drinking a cup of coffee and eating a bad sandwich. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's disappointing, but, you yeah. know, it's, it's, uh, we all know why we're here. Yeah. Now, uh, the other thing, how many Olympic games have you covered, Tim? 14. Unbelievable. And so that's being delayed. And that, that could also have uh, effects. Granted, it's only a year. So you would think 
uh, the same athletes who would have been eligible this year can more or less do it next year. But my guess would be when you hopefully cover those Olympics next year that you're going to find stories of people who are all primed and then something happened to them or there was an injury <laughs> or they fell out of shape or anything that kind of prevented them from having their one their one shot. Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of days after the postponement, you know, I I, I I said I I had a Twitter exchange with Trey Hardy, who was an Olympic, two-time Olympic decathlete, and I I just said the one thing we can count on is that the 2021 Olympic team will look different from the 2020 Olympic team. Yeah. Some people will be there. There'll be new faces. There'll be people who decide not to do it, and you know, you know, Trey just said he thinks there'll be like a you know a 25% difference. Uh, I think most people are trying to go forward, most athletes, but some of them are just not going to make it. They're not going to be in shape like they were. They're going to get injured. They're going to run out of money. A lot of things are going to happen to change it. And uh, and also, you know, I don't I don't think we're anywhere near the point where anybody can say that those Olympics a year from now are 100% going to happen. You know, it's uh, sure, of course. I don't know what yeah. the I don't know what number I'd put on it right now, but it's not 100. Well, Tim, it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, as a last little bit here. And this was something I meant to clear with you beforehand. So please, please feel free to say no. Uh, but I've been running a trivia league uh, for about six months now. And there's various categories of questions. And I thought one fun thing to do with guests would be to ask them questions uh, in the area of their expertise. So I was going to say, Tim, beforehand, I was going to say, Tim, can I ask you, you know, three or four <laughs> Olympics trivia questions and put you through the ringer here? I suspect they'll be pretty easy for you, uh, but some of them might be tougher uh, how do you feel about that challenge well what can i say now <laughs> like, I like i mean i now i'd rather go over for three than uh than spend than, than than bail on you right now so, well so. what i would i would if you said no i would delete this i wouldn't be mean and be, <laughs> and leave it in and say uh, yeah he cowered it out he flipped out all right so we'll start with uh we'll start with this one um this one is the owner of yuki's diffusion which is a Seattle beauty salon founded in the late 70s and still operating today, is the father of the most decorated Winter Olympian in American history. What is Yuki's last name? The most decorated Winter Olympian. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying, I don't, I don't, I don't think I know who that is. Is his name Haydn? No. No, no. Uh, Amer in American history. Uh, oh, Haydn was American. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Yuki's what diffusion. Sport? What sport is it? Uh, uh, there's skates involved. Skates involved. So I'm thinking speed skater. Um, I don't know who that is. It's the last name is Ono. Uh, that was the father of Apollo oh, Anton Ono. I yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed that yeah. I managed to stump you. Uh, all right, let's go. Um, all right, here we go. Identify the Idaho village that is the namesake of an American gold medalist. The village name comes from a Native American word that may mean shining waters or silver water, but has nothing to do with whimsical displays of poor object permanent skills. Uh, that would be peekaboo. Bingo. You got it. And yeah. uh, <laughs> all right, we'll do a, we'll do another Winter Olympics one. And that'll be that's, this for, be that's for peekaboo street, the, the, the alpine skier. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> Good context. Yeah. Uh, all right, last one here. The Austrian loser Marcus Prock won seven straight World Cup championships between 1990 and 97 and 10 overall, but was routinely frustrated at the Olympics by a rival who won gold to his silver in 92 and 94, silver to his bronze in 2002, and who knocked him off the podium with a gold in 98. Who was Prock's rival? 
That would be George Hockle. Bingo. Two for three. Well done, sir. And, you know, since we were talking about SI earlier, in 1997, SI sent me to Austria and Germany for 10 days to do a 3,000-word story on Marcus Prock and George Hockle. <laughs> that's, that's what Sports <laughs> Illustrated was like. Now, that story, at the, that's... Time, at the time, I think I wrote a lead that compared them to Joe Montana and Dan Marino. One of them was the great athlete who right. never, who couldn't win many Super Bowls. The other was the, the gamer who was always great in the big moment, and that was Montana. So it was a little <laughs> bit of a stretch, but it made my editor a little more willing to actually run the story. That's really funny. So, yeah, I, I did not know that. But needless to say, that was in your wheelhouse. And I'm definitely going to read that story because I grew up uh, loving Hackle. And I don't know why. He was just one of those people who captured my imagination because he looked so very unathletic on a luge. Yeah. And, and Prox seemed like a superhuman almost. And, and Hackle somehow, you know, tinkering with his sled or, you know, he was like a tech genius and he kept beating him. Yeah, and the Hockel was this guy, I don't know, he's like 5'8", 175 pounds, just kind of chubby. Um, <laughs> yes. the, the greatest skill to have as a luge racer is to be able to not move. <laughs> you know, like to get on the sled and not move. To be completely and he was still. so good at not moving that his nickname in the sport was the dead man. That is funny. That is funny. Yeah. Well, I, I've yeah. been I've been getting quite good at not moving myself over the last month. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. hey, Tim, this was really great. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. You're the first uh, full guest on Apocalypse Sports Radio. Uh, probably one of the foremost honors of your career. I can only imagine. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you, and I uh, appreciate your time. And I, I hope you uh, surviving the coronavirus well. Yeah, thanks, Shane. It's awesome. Segment break. <laughs> All right, again, that was Tim Layden. He was fantastic. I don't know if you heard at the tail end of what he was saying, but as he was saying goodbye, I accidentally pushed the segment break button. Um, so you can, I tried to edit it out, but you can probably hear the tail end of it. And Tim, to his credit, never commented on the fact that this very strange sound effect, which he has never heard before, uh, was playing as he was saying goodbye. So thank you for that, Tim, and thank you for a, a great interview. It's actually the second time we've spoken, and um, it's always good. Maybe every six years we'll have to get together and catch up all right so uh that's the end of this week's episode we're gonna play a little outro music now and uh good news is next week we've got will leach uh which is very exciting founder of deadspin uh, currently works with mlb and does some stuff for new york magazine so you'll have that to look forward to next thursday and then next tuesday we'll have one of our little uh, variety show episodes come out so check it out check out apocalypse sports network uh, apocalypsesports.net and as of today, this podcast should be on iTunes if you want to subscribe. I know it's on Spotify already, and we'll work on getting it on some other stuff. So have a great weekend, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.